Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Hello everyone, I'm Emma Fell, Head of Content, Head of Content here at HET and welcome to another talk supporting digital transformation from healthcare excellence through technology. Today's talk will be on mental health, uh, digital mental health. Today our expert speakers will be unpacking the state of mental health and technology, which apps and tools were here before and what is here to stay, as well as what does good look like, establishing quality of care in this new ways of working. Our first speaker and moderator today is HET Committee member Heather Cordell, who is the Chief Nursing Officer at Surrey and Borders Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. She is a trustee of the Cabell Nurses Trust and a proud member of the Shuri Network, whose aim is to increase the number of BAME women within the digital health technology leadership. Um, Heather's NHS career spans 23 years in a range of roles, which include Executive Chief Nurse, Eating Disorders Nurse Therapist, and Systemic Physio uh, Psychotherapist. In 2017, Heather became the Director of Nursing for Improvement in NHS England, where she directed National Nursing and Midwifery Strategic Planning and Delivery, including safeguarding. Heather later led a transformation project across the NHS England and NHS Improvement London region to improve patient experience and outcomes across the interface between mental health and acute hospitals. Joining her today is Efficacy's Clinical Director, Lee Grant, who has a wealth of experience in mental health and psychological wellbeing services. From primary care, busy A&E departments, uh, liaison psychiatry, crisis intervention, home treatment, CMHTs and inpatient psychiatry units to running welling groups and leading three MSc programs in CPT and K at KCL. We also have Lucy Warner with us today, Chief Exec at NHS Practitioners with over 30 years NHS experience ranging across many aspects of healthcare, working with practices, local and national teams and including a stint in Gibraltar. The NHS Practitioner Health Programme is a confidential primary care-led service for doctors and dentists across England with a network of more than 300 clinicians supporting the service. Practitioner <laughs> Health is at the heart of the NHS response to workforce wellbeing during COVID-19, providing online support, webinars and resources for the 1.2 million NHS staff across the country. Next up today, um, happy to welcome Ross O'Brien, the Digital Innovator, Innovation Director at Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust. Ross was formerly the service lead for the Grenfell Health and Wellbeing Service, the NHS Mental Health Service established following the Grenfell Tower Fire to support the community affected by the tragedy. Ross used VR to engage with the community following the Grenfell tragedy and has led a series of innovative new approaches to deploy VR in community health settings. Ross is also the programme lead of the London Digital IAPT programme at Health London, Healthy London Partnerships and is working to establish a digital single point of access for all Londoners accessing NHS, NHS um, psychological therapy services. Ross is a graduate from the Digital Health London Digital Pioneer Fellowship. Ross holds a Human Rights Masters from the University of London. Finally today, we are joined by Dr. Lloyd Humphreys, Head of Europe for Silver Cloud Health, a digital therapeutics leader in mental health that has over 30 programmes, including a specific COVID-19 product to manage wellbeing. The service has provided digital treatment for over 400,000 people, serving over 80% of NHS IAPT services, as well as, as well as being part of the government's national response for managing the well-being of frontline workers in the NHS and social care. A huge welcome to all of our speakers today, um, and I thank everyone for taking the time to both prep and join us for today's discussion. We'll be starting the webinar shortly, so um, please note that our speakers will be answering your live questions um, at the end of their discussion. So make sure to add any and um, all of your new questions to the Q&A function and not to the chat function where there'll be opportunity to vote up all the questions you like and we'll get to as many as we can. I'll now pass over to Heather, thank you. Thank you, Emma. And uh, welcome to, to everyone and to our fantastic um, uh, panel members joining us today. Um, I just wanted to, again, briefly remind us as to why we're here and why this is important. And quite simply, um, for those of us working within mental health, connecting is really important. And once the um, restrictions started around the pandemic, um, we found ourselves as mental health professionals and people using services um, uh, at risk of uh, not connecting. 
And what technology has done and digital platforms have given us is an opportunity to maintain those connections. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because it will, I suppose, bring to light how we've done that, how we've um, cancelled out or mitigated the risks of self-isolating, um, how we've used uh, video consultation uh, apps and other digital tools to help us carry out effective treatments and psychological interventions. And really, has this done anything and offered any um, uh, opportunities or, or solutions to some of the tricky issues within mental health? Um, for example, inequalities uh, of, of, of outcome or any other issues that we've, we continue to deal with. So without further ado, I'm really excited to, to bring on board our panellists just to say a bit about the work that they're doing to help us um, uh, understand this new world that we find ourselves in. And uh, I will be tripping over some of the new cliches of this pandemic era, such, era such as uh, the, the new normal, etc. Uh, so I will, uh, I'd like to um, invite Lucy just to say a bit more about herself and to, to share with us briefly some of the work that you're doing. Lucy. Thanks Heather. Um, so as Emma said in her introduction, uh, Practitioner Health is a service that treats doctors and dentists with mental health problems. We were established more than a decade ago and we're currently available to all of the 186,000 doctors and dentists who live or work in London. But when uh, the pandemic started in late March, we became involved with NHS England, looking at how we could support the wider workforce um, and what we could put in place to uh, grow the support and to contribute to, to what NHS England already had planned. So I'll talk a little bit about that in the moment, but I'm gonna start with a bit of our experience of, of delivering digitally prior to the pandemic. So traditionally as a mental health service, we'd felt that it was really vital to have face-to-face -face contacts when delivering mental health services, when assessing a new patient, all that stuff about being able to see how they walk in the room, how they smell, how they dress, all of those aspects. And so we really had done almost no video contact, uh, uh, video connections at that time. Is my audio working? I've got a message to say it's not, it is. We've got a bit of feedback coming through when you were speaking, but it got slightly better, Lucy. Okay, let's, let's keep going and hopefully it will improve. Um, so uh, because we had a team of around 300 people working across the service right across England, we have been used to doing virtual MDTs for a considerable amount of time now, for about three years. And that has worked really well. That's mainly been through telephone MDTs and on occasion through, through video technology. We had tried to introduce um, online modules for CBT, and, and I know Lee's going to talk about that and Lloyd in a little while. We had had quite a lot of resistance to this from our clinicians who man the service, and also our patients who are also clinicians, interesting enough. Despite the fact that we were getting pretty much the same outcomes, whether people went down the face-to-face -face route or the digital route, but traditionally there'd been quite a lot of resistance. Some groups have been more accepting of it. So for example, um, people who work shifts were happier to go through the online modules because it suited their work pattern to be able to access things at, at different sort of out of normal hours. And then the other group that it was always very popular with was new mothers. But COVID of course forced a sort of almost immediate change overnight and we had to adapt and we had to do things differently. Um, and since middle of March, we've been doing everything remote, everything via video. And I think the thing that we were most worried about was delivering groups online because we weren't quite sure how that was going to operate. And I have to say that those have been operating particularly well, and that may be because they were already established groups on the whole. People knew each other already and they had that connection. So since COVID's come along, what we've really needed to do is think about how can we develop at scale if we were going to offer these support spaces, these common rooms and webinars and the like to 1.2 million staff across the NHS, we really needed to be able to deliver at scale. And so we moved to online groups very, very quickly. Um, and I think one of the key things for us was developing the guidance for the hosts, not only around the technical aspects of it, how to, you know, which buttons to press and what have you, 
but really how to draw people out in a conversation uh, within that group, how to encourage people to engage through a computer screen where perhaps they wouldn't have been used to doing before. And also importantly, to sort of close down the conversation when somebody was dominating uh, the, the group discussion as a whole. So that's been a very important aspect of how we've developed. Feedback from our clinicians has been that one-to-one um, -one consultations have been much easier with existing patients. Um, they've said it has been more difficult to establish a therapeutic relationship with somebody that they've never met before, but not impossible. Um, we've had an extremely high take-up of the self-care modules that are offered through SilverCloud um, and also with the apps. And I think this shows the idea that people perhaps are not always comfortable talking about their mental health and seeking help immediately but I think apps and online modules really provide a pathway for people to start accessing care um, and used correctly they can really bring people in and get them started. Um, I think what's also been really important is our ability to be able to connect people from right across the country who are living similar experiences right now who perhaps wouldn't have had a chance to connect before. And it has been welcomed by the majority of the patients um, who are on the whole have been busy working professionals, some working on the front line, some working from their homes. Um, and the majority of our clinicians are also finding that they're adapting to it really, really well. Um, we've had lots of connections between the team, lots of MDTs, lots of online huddles and lots of tea and chat just for being sociable and supporting one another so that we can stay connected as a team. I think for patients it has been hard for some to find a confidential space where they can talk at home, particularly if they're caring for kids or if they've got partners at home. Um, some people have opted to go in the car to do consultations, for example. Um, some have created very much a therapeutic space at home, candles, blankets and the like, to make it a very comfortable space for them to do that. And then my top tip, just to end my bit, I would say is having sat through numerous uh, Zoom meetings and team, uh, meet teaming teams online throughout the day, I would say hide self-view. It's really abnormal to be looking at yourself day in, day out. So turn off self-view, but it's not quite so bad. Thanks, Heather. Thank you, Lucy. Um, and I can so relate with your top tip. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit disconcerting, isn't it? But I found it quite helpful sometimes to have uh, a sort of real example of that third eye. So looking at yourself, have a conversation with others has been um, quite illuminating for, for me. Um, we will have chance for questions later. And so I just wanted to move on to our next speaker, if that's okay. Um, and uh, Ross, can I ask you to come in? Absolutely, thank you very much. Um, so my name is Ross O'Brien, uh, as I was introduced, um, and uh, I've got a couple of roles. I'm the um, uh, Digital Innovation Director for CNWL, which is a trust in central and northwest London, um, and I'm also the London Digital IAPT lead, um, IAPT being Talking Therapies um, in England. I'm um, uh, leading on a couple of, uh, uh, of projects at the moment in my role in CNWL and primarily um, as Lucy talks about uh, the biggest shift for us has been this revolution in moving everyone online and offering therapy um, uh, via mediums uh, like Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams or any of the uh, video conferencing platforms and that's been um, a huge amount of, uh, of the work as I'm sure it has been for uh, lots of people um, across the UK um, and, and wider recently. Um, we're also within the NHS really heartened that um, we have a, a, a new department like NHSX, which has the vision and, um, and foresight to see that tools like Microsoft Teams need to be purchased and rolled out um, and, and pushed across the NHS um, uh, uh, for, for free locally. Um, and this has been a real, uh, real massive benefit for us. And without uh, without those kind of tools, we, we, we just wouldn't have been able to work effectively um, remotely, you know, um, uh, working from home, working from um, uh, uh, and people are working in, the, in, in, in cupboards and in uh, empty office spaces and in repurposed 
clinic restaurants and all that sort of thing. So um, having the tools to, to be in those spaces and to be able to work remotely has been really, really important. Um, in, my, uh, in my other role uh, with, with uh, Healthy London Partnerships across London, um, it's a digital programme. So we've been looking to do lots of uh, work about how people can work remotely, how people, um, how patients can engage online um, and, uh, and, and kind of accelerate that. Um, and it, it, in terms of COVID, COVID has been terrible. It's, it's horrific that we're living through this time. Um, in terms of the benefit to patients that we've seen digitally, they, you know, they, they, they've raced in. There's been such a huge, huge change. And I think some of the positives um, have been really beneficial and we, we need to hold on to those. So some of the positives like the fact that people don't need to pay for uh, transport to come to appointments, the fact that people don't need to take half of the time out of their day um, is, is, is really helpful. And I think as, um, uh, as Lucy was saying earlier as well, that kind of that move to online um, and, and, and online tools like Silver Cloud that, that I'm sure uh, Lloyd and Lee will talk about later um, uh, can also be really, really powerful um, in terms of the anonymous intimacy that it allows. Kind of, you know, um, Lucy mentioned about turning off her camera. I think one of the things that's empowering for a patient is also to be able to turn off their camera and to have that kind of a conversation with somebody, but not to see themselves as well um, uh, uh, and do that. So. Um, some of the other um, uh, things that we've done as a response to COVID, two of the other programmes have been to rapidly stand up a, uh, a series of webinars across London, um, which is something that, that, that IAP services haven't, haven't done before, um, certainly not at that scale. So we're looking, for, uh, we're, we're looking to support um, both staff and to support service users right across London um, uh, with a series of webinars around mental health and coping with, uh, with COVID. Um, and we've also rapidly stood up uh, a health chat platform whereby staff can access um, support around COVID um, and other healthcare staff essentially can man those chat, uh, that, that chat uh, platform and function in order that they can benefit from it and feel um, that there's somebody there and they can be supported but digital has enabled us to essentially do that at scale for the first time. And where we are now, yeah, we're, we're doing it at scale for the first time. So as well as it being a difficult time, um, there's some really exciting developments. Thank you, Ross, I'd absolutely agree with that. And um, as you were talking, I was reflecting um, on the benefits, whether is this really a transformation or is it an acceleration of what we, thought was possible and we are actually testing and experimenting in a way that is, is exciting with some benefits as you've described but so much more that we can we can we can look forward to yeah it's 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 an interesting question um my my personal opinion is that um it, we need to be really really careful about the one size fits all answer um i think um you know work with some colleagues this way of working um, is, is brilliant. It affords them more time in their lives. It, it, they can see the benefits for patients. Um, uh, for other colleagues, um, it's, it's really difficult. Um, you know, having two young children myself, um, I find myself, I'm not a record executive. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm squatting in, in a friend's office and, and, and that, that's quite odd. And that kind of relationship you have as a professional with either um, uh, other colleagues or with patient changes because of the nature of, of this way of engaging. But I certainly think that there are a lot of gains uh, that we need to think about holding on to. And I certainly also think that um, there, was a, there was always a need for a leap of faith in terms of whether bosses could trust that their staff would work in this way. And I think video consultation and flexible working has been held off by a misrepresented belief that unless somebody was in the office, they weren't going to be working. Yeah. Um, and I think this is really, really showing that actually productivity, um, output, well-being can also benefit from, um, uh, from a more flexible way of working. So I hope the benefits are here to stay. 
Absolutely. I was wondering about your um, moonlighting um, there, Ross. <laughs> I, I can, I can uh, sign the records after all. Brilliant. Thank you, Ross. Uh, and can I bring you in, Lee, um, on that point on, on some of the, the exciting possibilities and benefits of this new way of working? Yes, it's um, difficult to talk about the exciting opportunities that are taking place with the backdrop of what we sit within as well. Um, but we do have to attend to that there are some benefits here. Um, for me, one of the things I think I'm going to take away from this whole experience is I'm going to delete the word balance and finding a balance between work and life or commercials and clinical outcomes. It's actually a fusion. It has to be both. When I'm homeschooling, my own experience when I'm homeschooling or checking out an appointment with a child, um, 20 minutes before this appointment today, you know, my whole day is rolling into one. Picking up on Ross's point, yes, productivity has gone up, but the other things I need to pick up is, I think we all need to pick up on is our stop signals, when to stop working and, you know, make that separation about when to go. So as a clinical director of efficacy, um, my role is really to make sure that systems are up operational and that people are getting the most out of them and trying to predict what happens. So we went a little bit early in, 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 in lockdown, which was good. So it meant we could get the operations up and start to think about what's about to happen. Just sharing my screen there, you should be able to see that hopefully. And this was some of our early predictions. It was a simple infographics by um, an American person who, um, I hope you can see that. I can't share it. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to go with that. So what we see is what we'd expect everybody coming in. And we're just coming out of that now where the, the numbers are going down in terms of ITU. That's going to have a lag effect for the second wave of health, other parts of physical health. But we know from the research what happened in SARS, MERS, etc., and the skill for other non-pandemic um, community disasters, this lag is going to last between three to seven years. Thinking about what we do about that and predicting from the research is what are the difficulties going to be? Yes, anxiety, depression, not in the early stages. In times of war, in times of distress, anxiety disorder, the common mental health problems fall. That's exactly what we've seen presentations have gone. Then what happens, the isolation. We know when we're isolated, remote, you know, I, I, I'm in a busy, you know, I don't stop speaking to people all day, every day, but it still feels isolating because you don't have those, those sandwiches between those meetings about the um, personal interactions. Loneliness for a lot of people. Then we've got the grief, the PTSD. We know 25% of people come out of our intensive care with post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Add that to they were, you, those people went around loved ones, they were left alone, the interpersonal stuff with PPE. How does that affect them? Stress, financial problems, financial problems, suicidality goes up. So we can predict from the past what's happened. And we put together here a footprint of what we predict might happen. The disruption phase, we know. What happened there when we came in and looked at our therapist, the disruption was removing from a face-to-face -face traditional is how did they go into the remote world? And how do they use a mouse at the same time of changing screens and um, you know, we're trying to book appointments and keeping that all going and doing the therapy at the same time. The negative view of it meant that for, and it was a therapist variable, that some um, onboarded their patients very well, 100%, and some 100% didn't. So we know it's about how they communicate whether remote can work was the part that influenced the patient coming on. As we go through the adaption phases, we're looking at the onboarding of patients and keeping them engaged in therapy. I was speaking last time when what we, what we think is going to happen is that there's not going to be people who are going to engage in for a full course of therapy. What we're now seeing, that's not, that is happening, the suspending therapy, but we're having very few discharges. A lot of people are staying in therapy and we need to think about how we manage that. Make sure, yes, if, we're, if they're suspended, does that mean they're not seeing? Risk is dynamic in terms of suicidality. So how do we have our check-ins? How can we do that remotely? And um, we have some apps in development to do risk assessments and you know, obviously have to respond fast. The preparation phase of starting to go back, I think we're starting to see this now, is what we're seeing is there's a, a bit where I've been hearing over the last week where there's 
therapy being suspended or stopped because there's relationship problems. What happens, moving on to just quickly jumping into this slide, I was looking this morning at um, some of our websites and, you know, looking at 19,000 um, search terms that landed on our website, um, looking for sex therapy over the last six months. If we see over the last month, we've got a rise here. This is the relationship part where the maybe sex is the, the sex therapy they're looking for, but sitting behind that is the distress. And I think this is part of the transition. This is why we're seeing rentals going up. People are starting to move out. Relationships are starting to break down. As we move into this phase, we have to come to terms with how do we live in the world with COVID still taking place. The stabilization phase, it's just a small bit here, but that could be three to seven years in length. And then thinking about what's happening, I think we have to use technology to predict what comes next. If we look what's happening in May, this is the last six months. COVID, we saw less people looking for help and mental health. This is massive. People are out there, but we're not seeing them come through. People are searching for behaviours, trying to access. We don't have the services set up and really the numbers of therapists, mental health appointments to do this, not just in business as usual, but also in the digital space. So we've got to think about really how, how we do this. And there's a number of ways of, for, for our organisation, we've been using this in the preparation phase. So over the last week, we had um, Cypochondria. Uh, we um, did a webinar for our team from one of our professors. We thought, thought about how to deal with procrastination, which was particularly useful for me last Friday. Um, and think about how can we target things for particular individuals, particular organisations, particular groups at various stages that we go through the the COVID footprint. What we, what we do know, this is some data that we have from 2019. When we look at people, group income protection, corporate uninsured people, blue light services, um, these police services um, in various plates and ambulance service and one fire and rescue, and also lawyers here. We see, for those of you familiar with the PHQ and GAD, measures of depression, anxiety, everybody gets better really with us. Then when we look at um, GPs, Lucy's service here, they, I, I cut the data so we could grab what's happening. We use the online um, digital platform of Silver Cloud, Lloyd's going to talk about. If we see they equally get better, they also get better um, in half the amount of time as these, but that's a commercial consideration, but you know, it's more efficient for it's equally well. And as Lucy alluded to before, the hard sell early on was, the, was, the, was trying to say it's equally as effective, whether it's face-to-face -face and remote. I could talk for a lot longer and I'm sure I'm over, so I'll just stop there. Yes, sorry. And it's, it's fascinating. So um, you've really challenged my moderating skills because I was willing to listen to you for a lot longer, Lee. It's just a snapshot into, I suppose, your, your mapping of the... Um, the COVID underpinning of how um, our, our mental health and well-being will be changed and shaped by this. And I quite liked how you were able to reflect the agility that digital intervention can deploy in response to what is an extraordinary demand in services because of how extraordinary our situation is. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and I like the idea of swapping the word balance, work-life balance with work-life fusion. It makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, Lloyd, can I bring you in uh, to just share with us some of the work that you're doing? Sure, not a problem at all. Thank you very much, Heather. So just a little bit of background in terms of Silver Cloud, um, and then I'll go on to some of the emerging trends and answer some of the questions that have uh, come through, uh, both in terms of kind of the Q&A, uh, so some of the themes, but, but also pick up on some of the points uh, that, that the other panelists have mentioned. So just a very, very quick kind of uh, context of Silver Cloud. Uh, we're a digital um, therapy platform with over 30 plus programs uh, ranging from clinical mental health issues such as depression, anxiety uh, to long-term conditions but also some of the more well-being areas such as sleep insomnia stress 
uh, resilience as well, and, and also more complex issues such as bipolar. So, so a whole kind of uh, continuum and spectrum, and it can be used um, both self-help, so you can go through the program by yourself, particularly for, for more well-being uh, areas, as well as being kind of supported uh, through services like Practitioner Health Program, uh, kind of CNWL that, that Ross kind of comes from, and, and obviously efficacy, uh, which has some uh, incredible kind of outcomes in using a, a blended approach. And so I guess uh, we haven't been doing this, uh, you know, for a short period of time. Um, we started uh, back in 2002. So we're one of the forefathers really of kind of digital and been working with the NHS for over 10 years and kind of represented in about 70 to 80 percent of uh, mental health services, primarily IAPT, but also uh, increasingly in, in other mental health services as well, more, more specialist services. Um, and kind of what we've found over the last uh, kind of 11 to 12 weeks is the fact that obviously digital has kind of emerged uh, not just as, as kind of a, a treatment choice that's at the back end of your toolkit, but something that can be used right across the journey uh, from kind of maintaining kind of contact with people um, all the way through kind of a, a kind of an equivalent kind of treatment option to, to kind of waiting lists and, and kind of making sure that you can kind of maintain someone's psychological well-being. And, and through that, what we've seen is that um, our platforms have seen over a 400% increase in, in usage over that time, and, and almost half a million people will have been treated with Silver Cloud uh, since, since we've started. Uh, globally, we cover about 200 million lives uh, globally. But when it kind of came to COVID, we wanted to make sure that we could kind of support um, everybody in the best possible way. So we've worked with the Practitioner Health Programme, NHS England, in uh, being able to provide Silver Cloud at no cost to NHS workers, their families, and being built into the care app to, to also support social workers and, and their families as well, as, as well as right across uh, some national responses in Scotland, Wales, uh, and in Ireland as well. So, so really being able to support as many people as, as possible. I think for us, some of the emerging trends that we've seen, and to Heather's point, is, is this an acceleration or a transformation? I think IAPT really has led the way when it comes to kind of transformation. Um, it's been a, a, now in its 11th year, it really transformed the way that mental health services were delivered. And I would argue it's probably one of the most successful NHS transformation programs of its time. Um, and so, so, so I don't think there's a transformation within IAPT. I think there's very much an acceleration, which I'll come back to. But we're also seeing kind of digital being picked up by other types of mental health services where face-to-face -face might have been the treatment of choice previously, but has not been possible. So so much more kind of complex uh, mental health, as well as also in terms of kind of well-being, those people that might not have met criteria for mental health service as well. So, so I think there's been a transformation and an acceleration. I think for, for me also, the, the importance of not pathologizing uh, mental health. And I think that's been really clear. When, when we kind of had a look at what programs we should make available uh, for self-help, we deliberately didn't choose our anxiety program. Because when we think about kind of traditional anxiety, that can often be seen as an abnormal response to a normal situation. Whereas for, for COVID, it's actually a normal response to an abnormal situation. So, so to kind of treat this in the same way that we would treat other kind of issues that might might kind of arise in terms of challenges to mental health, I think we needed to take a different kind of perspective on it. And that's why we did create a, a specific space from COVID-19 uh, program to really kind of build people's coping skills, their social connectedness, um, et cetera. So, so that was really, really key for us to develop that. But also for us, it was key to, to address other groups as well. And, and one of the comments was, um, what about children and young people and older adults? Well, we've just launched uh, a young person's program for anyone uh, age 14 plus and a parent's program coming out in September, you know, really to kind of help people in terms of their anxiety going back to school and, and some of the issues that might be associated with that. But also in terms of older adults, we find older adults actually are one of the most successful and have some of the best outcomes. Uh, over 65s have, have the best, best, almost the best outcomes out of any age range at all. And we've got quite, quite a large number of studies for that. Um, so for us, we've seen the equivalence. And, and I think this is a theme that's been picked up by, by a number of people that digital now no longer is just seen as a kind of a side issue. It's now kind of got that equivalence and parity.
And that's kind of supported both by NICE, uh, who've released a medtech evaluation on, on digital therapies, where you can kind of see the equivalence. And not only is there equivalence in terms of kind of outcome, you can actually see that more people actually complete digital treatment uh, than traditional. Uh, in, in that evaluation, uh, completion, treatment completions in, in other forms of treatment were around about 52%, with Silver Cloud 93%. So you can see a big difference in terms of kind of the acceptance. Uh, and, and when it's not, and, and some of the lack of confidence around digital, it's not often around uh, the end user, the service user, the client that might be asking for a service. It's often around kind of the professionals in terms of, you know, the familiarity with this new way of working. And, and that's not just in terms of digital therapy, that's kind of uh, online video. Uh, and so we need to kind of build that kind of confidence that these solutions are, do work that they are effective and the outcomes do, do support them as well. And so for me, that's kind of one of the biggest barriers in terms of scaling. Um, firstly, kind of having that confidence as, as, as being kind of highlighted, but also for me, awareness. Uh, awareness is, is absolutely key because how do we get digital, which has the ability to scale into as many hands as possible? And there's one really interesting uh, fact that kind of came out from um, Anxiety UK, a charity that works specifically with people with anxiety uh, issues. And they did a survey and they found that I think, uh, I think the statistics was around about only 56% of their members were aware of IAPT services. And this is kind of the main route into NHS mental health care. So how do we kind of start to make people more aware of what the options are and the availability of this? Okay. And so thanks very much, Heather, for in terms of the time. I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you, Lloyd. And um, I'm just um, reflecting on the fact that uh, although you're, um, you, you've been in existence since 2002, your name Silver Cloud is, a, is apt for so many reasons that out of this unfortunate and tragic situation, Quite a lot of innovation and new ways of working and um, and and levers for change have come about. Um, I'm just going to open up the the discussion now looking at some of the questions uh, from uh, our viewers um, and they we've got quite a few about 815 or so and um, quite a lot of requests Lee for your slides so uh, I believe that we will be able to share them. Um, uh, and uh, so that's that's great. Uh, Lucy, uh, there's um, there's some requests about uh, whether you can share the guidance that you have produced for hosts for group sessions, um, and also what platforms are you using to run groups? Um, if you want to just answer that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, more than happy to, to share the guidance that we've pulled together. I'll, I'll send that through afterwards. Um, we're using Zoom at the moment. And we've tested Teams, we've tested Google Hangout, uh, but we really like Zoom. It seems to offer the most functionality, the ability to create breakout rooms, polls, the chat function, the ability to raise your hand. Or, um, so, so we love it, but we're aware that there's a number of trusts at the moment that are not allowing people to use it. Most people can use it on their phones or their iPads if they've got those. Um, the, the paid for version of Zoom has got lots of added security um, and we pulled together a document which we've put to the information governance people and asked them to review it uh, because we think it's a real shame that the, the tool with the most functionality isn't currently accepted in some trusts. So we're hoping that uh, they'll accept that for the long term. Um, just in terms of consultations generally, I think it's been really helpful that the information governance team centrally have been really, really supportive of the idea you use what's best for you right now. So in terms of consultations, some of our clinicians have been using WhatsApp and FaceTime because the information governance has been quite flexible about what we use. But we're now undertaking our own review to see what we're going to use moving forward for consultations. Um, and I understand there's been an approved list of suppliers that have uh, been pulled together just in the last week, which we're going to have a look at and see which one's best for us. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy, for that. Um, there's quite a lot of interest uh, on the issue of age with regards to diversity. Quite a lot of questions about CAMs uh, and what's the best um, way of working or, uh, or platforms. And in particular, there was a question about um, 
uh, uh, schools, some details with regards to returning to school programs. Lloyd, you did comment on, on age and, and referenced the, um, the, the, the fact that older uh, adults are more um, adept, I suppose, in this medium. I just wondered if, if Ross or Lee, if you had any experience from a CAMS or, or, or children's point of view, if you wanted to share or address some of the questions. Yes, um, I think we also have to remember that we are providers, but we also have to remember that we're all patients as well. Um, from our own experiences, we have to say that, you know, using digital technology on one side has been really useful and helpful to access um, children's health, but also seeing on, a on the provider's point of view and looking at our children coming through the service is making sure those systems are still in place and also think creatively about how the safeguarding issues you could usually um, do very easily within the room. Um, you still need to just think a little bit more creatively to make sure you're checking things out. Um, on a, another experience is shocked to find a child was in a um, it was doing a, a, a CAMS psychiatric assessment in a classroom with everybody else present. Um, it's just thinking about things as adults we would automatically think about is thinking about confidentiality. So we know that we do, as practitioners, have to think creatively and jump through the hoops. But it, it, it doesn't have to be face to face. But it's also using those technology where they don't need to deliver. The children are very good at, you know, they're like sponges. We know that. But so they can use digital technology. They can use all those different interfaces. And they will pick up on little points here rather than traditionally what we do. We'll do an hour. In one block gets as much. Children need it in bite-sized chunks all the way through. Digital uh, silver cloud is a fantastic part where they can dive in, dive out, dive in. I think it's yeah. a great opportunity. Yeah, so no, that, that, that is quite um, an important consideration to have. And uh, I just wanted to merge a, a couple of interesting questions and uh, reflections people are having about um, digital literacy and how are we considering supporting those whose first language isn't English and connected to that uh, there's another question of whether you think um, there's something we need to do about digital inclusion to ensure uh, that health inequalities um, is being considered and we're not creating unintended inequalities through this medium. So I've, I've done a bit of a mashup really. English, not first language. Um, what, what's the concept of digital inclusion and whether we are um, attentive to some unintended consequences? And that, Ross, I don't know if you had some thoughts about yeah. that. Yeah, I, for me, um, one of the things that we've always been limited by in, in, in healthcare um, in a non-digital fashion um, is geographical uh, boundaries and the commissioning structures that are set up around them. So, you know, um, uh, uh, Babylon is a really good example where you have a GP surgery that's based in one part of London, but you can be seen all across London. And I think lessons from that kind of Babylon example are going to be really, really helpful in the future for being able to see people all over across um, regions or, or even countries um, and to be able to offer bespoke support. So say for example in London at the moment in the Digital IAPT programme we're starting to think about rather than having 32 IAPT services in 32 boroughs um, with everybody on a separate digital uh, platform offering support to the, the people that have a GP surgery in that particular borough do we kind of flip it on its head? Do we have one platform that goes across the region um, in order that somebody that lives in uh, North London who needs a Somali speaking therapist can access those therapists who normally work in uh, South West London um, and only cater for the borough that they, that they work in. And I think um, that, that, that kind of that opportunity to think in a different way to really start from scratch in terms of designing services is going to be really, really beneficial. Um, and, and it'll also point to what the actual need is um, across the region rather than uh, a local service realising that they can't offer services in 
Farsi or Mandarin or whichever language that they need and that being kind of the end of the story or then uh, using uh, an, an interpreter and we we know from uh, years of research that interpreting services are great but something is often lost in translation and there's an issue around trust and there's an issue um, around stigma so being able to work at a different scale and being able to um, uh, uh, gain access to, to different mother tongue therapies is going to be really important. However, um, I think there's a really big issue and it's starting to emerge quite quickly around the digitally excluded. Um, uh, so for, for people that don't have access to a private and confidential space or for people that um, don't have access to a device or, or, or a data plan, um, how, how, how do you get around that? And, and those are really big emerging questions at the moment. And I think we need to see the benefits that digital is going to bring us, but also very quickly start to lobby for stuff like, um, uh, you know, access to devices or access to broadband um, uh, on a large scale. And I think in this new emerging culture of um, digital by default, we also need to start to think of how, how, how do we, cater for the excluded? How do we ensure that if somebody has kind of fallen off the radar that they do have a safe face-to-face -face offer? Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not offering very many solutions, but I think we, we definitely need to be aware of all of the issues. And so, you know, you start with an equality impact assessment and work through that, work through which cohorts of patients are we not getting to, which individuals, which um, uh, in, endangered uh, children. You know, who, who do we need to uh, who do we need to reach out to and put extra effort into um, in order to make sure that they're not excluded or left behind. Yes, Ross, you you've actually echoed quite a lot of the 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 questions and sentiments on the in the questions. Really wanting to understand or hear about any solutions. Or experiences people have had to mitigate digital exclusion um, and I think one question asks um, how can we assure ensure that the array of digital apps around mental health are being promoted equally for example using Amazon as an example Amazon is the most popular online retailer but not always the best in terms of value so that's something about availability and access but there's quite a lot of interest in how how do we mitigate that that idea of, um, uh, I think someone put it, um, making things as, as, as simple and accessible as possible to the agnostic uh, digital user so that everyone has access to this new way of working. Yeah. I'm going to throw that out there to whoever would like to answer that. Is that I'll just pick up this up very, very briefly. Um, I, I think Ross is absolutely correct. In, in a, digital by default doesn't mean digital only. Um, and so, so we do need a whole array of solutions available, face-to-face, -face, uh, video, etc. So, so, so we don't we don't want the pendulum to swing entirely over to the other end. And I think I think that's really important. There isn't a one-size kind of fit, fits all with this, um, and there isn't a one-size fits all. Um, and, and that also means that not all digital is developed uh, or created equal. Um, different evidence base, different ways of working, different types of solutions. So you're absolutely right. There does absolutely need to be a way to evaluate that. That's kind of where um, solutions like Orca, um, which is the health apps library that assesses things, the NHS apps library, or even kind of nice in terms of their med tech evaluations. Um, people do need to kind of have a look that, and because you do need a level of a level of trust, a level of evidence, um, and, and a level of usability as well. So so not just in terms of evidence but usability by by clients who are actually going to be picking these things up so so i think that's absolutely kind of essential excellent i absolutely agree lee you want to come in yes i'm, I'm, I'm just sure Craig, i think i agree with all of that but we, we also have to think about it's not just about the digital because there are some people who let's say in a family only have one mobile phone who has to be passed around and who has it for a confidential conversation how we manage that but it's also think so we have to think creative. It's not just about digitalists, think about all those remote aspects. Um, but also it's not about just about 
mental illness support. I think I am very focused that we have to remember that, yes, we all have mental health, but what we're focused on here in a clinical service is treating mental illness and making sure that the apps are appropriate or the digital technology is appropriate for that. Mm. Um, and, and while it's, we also have to take those cultural parts in, 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 into consideration, um, Black Lives Matters at the moment. I was struck by a therapist this morning who's really struggling and came to you saying, I just can't do this anymore. Black Lives Matters is going on. So I spend my whole day, everybody, with white people. And she, I won't go into the details of it, her story, but it really struck me what we came to is I'm really isolated from my community. What can we do? She, she's not religious, but pre-COVID, she did go to church. And that was a link with the community. And think about how could she go into live Facebook, I wouldn't recommend that as a mental health app, you know, it has its uses to keep us connected, but how can we use those different things to keep connected? Now, as a CBT therapist, she would have said that automatically to a patient, so it's kind of how can we help be here? We're all learning together, you know, so there's a part about how can we think creatively to think, have you thought about connecting this way? Can you do this? And sharing these ideas because you know, my therapist who share ideas with me, I'm learning every day as well. I never thought of that, I never thought of that. And how can we come together and you know, not just have this as, as a one-off, but keep the process going of sharing and disseminate the new learning through all the different ways, culture, interpretation, and our standard uh, business as usual care. I think that connection idea is so important right now when we're all working remotely or many of us are and you know we're all used to sort of running into each other in the corridor or by the kettle and, and we're not doing that right now so you know when I mentioned in my presentation you know one of the most important things we've done is to have the tea chat time when it's not about work it's about kind of how's your day been what's going on what have you been baking, all of those sorts of things and, and just really sort of enjoying that time together as a team. And I think that's been really, really valuable. And, and we've done that as a large group. We've done that with sort of over 170 people in that, all sort of chatting and creating breakout rooms so people can go off and have a chat in, in smaller numbers. And we've done it in, you know, just two or three of us on the screen. And I think it's really important to have that time. Yes, yes, it absolutely is. And um, uh, in, in addition to that, I was just um, looking at one question here, which asks whether we are aware of any work that's being done to support the digital advocacy divide, where some service users have access to a high level of digital support at home, whereas others don't have any personal support. So we, we were talking about it, but whether we are, I suppose, able to give any practical signposting to that, to that digital, digital advocacy to ensure digital inclusion. I don't know if anyone. I, I think for me, it's about it's going to be about political lobby, and I'm I'm really there's there's really not a sense of enough support for digital advocacy and uh, enablement. Um, there's not a sense of a, a pot of money coming down the road or an initiative on a national scale, which is what we'll need um, to ensure that we're that we're levelled up. Um, and so for me, I think it, it really starts um, at a local level, but then to escalate in terms of uh, ongoing lobbying to make sure that it happens and that people get access. Yes, yes. And, and there is a question here about whether, um, are there any numbers on relapse cases from solely digital therapy or breakdowns? And, um, uh, and can we get that by demographic communities? Yeah, yes, uh, there's a, a, a posted in uh, our long-term follow-up paper uh, by Nature was published on Monday, uh, which looks at kind of relapse rates and improvements over time. And there's significant improvement over time. So I, I shall um, post that in the chat. Fantastic. Thank you, Lloyd. Um, I did see a question about virtual reality. Do you think there's, a, this is a, back to the question of transformation, acceleration, or, or, or anything else. Is this a, a gateway into using more innovative and creative methods more mainstream and making that available we've um uh, i've done a bit of work in virtual reality for um uh post grenfell and we used um virtual reality to engage with patients uh well we engage with the local community um, and to start discussions on mental health and it was really really effective um i've seen some really strong examples whereby 
Um, VR has been prescribed by GPs for a number of different um, ailments. And the benefit of doing that is that some of the therapy that might have happened face to face or um, say it's physical therapy, um, some of the, the ability for a VR headset to track movements, to track biometrics, heart rates, um, all of that sort of stuff, um, uh, is, is it, it, the, the tech is there and it's actually not very expensive. So there's some really good examples of where GPs are prescribing a headset out, people are um, uh, fulfilling their uh, ther therapy remotely um, and then sending the headsets back. They're, 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 they're clean so that they're kind of clinically safe and then they're re-prescribed at a later date. And I think as we, you know, this is, a, this is the perfect time for that kind of safe experimentation where there's a bit of a risk taken because it's a different approach and it's something that people aren't used to. Um, uh, but actually, um, unless initiatives like that are thought of and, and trialed, people simply won't, won't get access to services. I, I think Lee mentioned earlier, he's seeing you know, services simply closing. Um, and, 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 and to be frank, we, we, we can't be in that situation. We need to be thinking of innovative ways to ensure um, uh, uh, services remain open. So I think, yeah, certainly in terms of virtual reality, it's, it's something that we should be looking to support um, and expand on. Thank you. Matt. Can I just mention one of the things that we are finding really useful for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, so with continued treatment. Mm -hmm. Part of the process in PTSD, when you, without going into the detailed process, the trauma, you might want to go back to, in terms of mopping up, is go back to where the index trauma took place. And that can be, and usually as a therapist, we like to do that with them. And that can be very difficult when we're in our home, our study at home, and, with, and the patient can't leave as well, especially if they're shielding. So using Google Maps and Google Street View have been creative ways and we've built up some support. That's been very anxiety provoking for therapists because believe it or not, therapists are really very controlling. They spend most of the time trying to pretend not to be, but they like to be there, they like to see it. So it was outside the comfort zone. So we set up a support, a remote um, supervision group for everybody to use clinical examples of how it worked. And what was interesting, we found Everyone starts to report their distress levels come down quicker. And I think what Ross, something that triggered my mind on that, Ross, is I think what it gives, it gives controllability. When you're out outside the Bank of England where the trauma happens and you've got all this business going on, it's unpredictable. Your anxiety is up when you're in a highly aroused state. When you're in Google Maps, it's predictable. You can spin around, you can look, you can take it, and it imprints a new memory that's safe. So I think that will be something we will do continuously after. God knows how many years we will continue to use maps like that. Yeah, and it's also scalable. So it works very, very well for um, uh, phobias as well. So uh, fear of heights, fear of flying, fear of spiders, what, what, whatever um, uh, phobia you might have. Graded exposure via VR is, is, is pretty simple to, uh, to do. Um, and yeah, you can get it, you can get it out, out to the masses. We were... Um, say about three years ago in a situation where a VR headset and, and the kit might have cost you uh, maybe two or three thousand pounds where we're now in a, in, a, in a position where the headsets are being sold in Argos for around 200 pounds so it, it's changed massively um, and, and uh, um, yeah I'd, I'd certainly like to see the, the use much more of, of VR as we move forward. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm just noticing the time, guys, and where has it all gone? We, we have so much more, and I was trying to do the questions justice, but um, sadly, we've come to the end of our time. And I think the main themes that seem to have come out of our conversation are around the issues of diversity and ensuring that we really um, put plans in place to promote digital inclusion that this, uh, this way of working using digital platforms and technology, either video or telephone, um, VR, it's give, really given us a level of agility to respond to something that's rapidly and significantly diverting from what we're used to. And of course, how do we continue to ensure that the very, very young in our society and also um, the very old, um, regardless of age, that they're able to access this new way of working because of the benefits that they 
that, that, that they offer. And without exception, I think we all reflected on the fact that delivering services as well as receiving them, there is something about, it's no longer a balance, but a fusion. And we can't get away from any aspect of our life because of how instantly accessible this way of working is. I tried to address all the themes and questions coming up. These slides will be shown. And I just want to thank you, Lucy, Ross, Lee and Lloyd for your time and your expertise and your passion for this fantastic subject and very important subject with regards to using technology within um, mental, mental health treatment and interventions. I think I'm gonna hand over to Emma now. Um, thank you. <laughs> A huge thank you to Heather Lloyd, Lee, Lucy and Ross for prepping and delivering such an engaging and informative talk. This and all upcoming talks will continue to be available on demand and also on the HEP podcast available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're registered to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments from all of us at HEP. But thank you everyone for joining us today and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET Live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.